Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're up to episode 111. As you know, we're tracking the war week by week, or as close as possible to that timeline. And we're in the first week of November 1901. The scenes have shifted recently between the war in South Africa and the effect of the war in England, particularly on political parties. The press there had begun to turn against the government with vitriolic attacks on the war hero Sir Redvis Buller, as we heard last week. There's more bad news for the government in the form of a commission made up of women sent to assess the concentration camps in South Africa, the Fawcett Commission. What liberal activist Emily Hobhouse had been decrying for months was about to be confirmed by a group of distinctly pro-Empire English women, much to the chagrin of some government officials. The death rates in these camps has been climbing constantly as they fill with more and more women and children. The camps for black South Africans are even worse. The last straw for the commanding officer, Lord Kitchener, had been the Benson smash-up in the Eastern Transvaal that covered last week. While the military gains for the Boers were somewhat limited, the effect on Boer morale was indescribable. General Louis Boerter had made Benson pay with his own life. Combine that with the news about the 17th Lancer Squadron, which had been decimated by Jan Smuts in the Cape, and you can see why Kitchener was deep in the doldrums, psychologically. It was so bad that Lord Roberts back home in England had dispatched his closest ally, Ian Hamilton, back to South Africa to keep an eye on Kitchener as his chief of staff. That had been in October 1901. By early November, Hamilton felt like a square peg in a round hole. Kitchener had no need of a chief of staff. He kept everything in his head. This, by the way, was to prove disastrous for the British during the First World War, as it had during the Battle of Padleberg in the first phase of the Boer War. But that's for another story on another day. The destruction of Benson's unit at Bachenlachter had not been a complete disaster for the British once Kitchener received a full report. Benson's rearguard had fought heroically and actually saved the entire column from being crushed. The Boers also had lost General Oppermann during the attack, which was a major blow to Louis Boerter. Kitchener's new grand strategy began to look more like Lord Milner's. As you know, Milner was High Commissioner, based in South Africa. This was to establish protected areas centred on Bloemfontein, Pretoria and Johannesburg, then to progressively work outwards, clearing the entire country of all guerrillas and simultaneously restoring civilian life within the protected zones. By the end of October 1901, 10,000 square miles in the Transvaal and Northern Orange River colony, as well as 4,200 square miles around Bloemfontein, had been officially declared absolutely clear of rebel Boers. While Kitchener wielded the weapons, Milner wielded the political policy, and despite having their differences, they agreed one of the main tools in this program was barbed wire. Lines of ordinary barbed wire now cut across the countryside, guarded at intervals by earth and iron-built blockhouses. These cost a paltry 16 pounds each, and the British were dropping these at intervals across South Africa. The system, though, had originated in January 1901 as a line of fortified posts set up first to protect railway lines. The Boers were no longer armed with artillery and these blockhouses would have been death traps for the British had they had artillery. Now the guerrillas were forced to cross these lines and were finding them more and more problematic. Boer commanders scoffed at the blockhouse effectiveness. However, they played a major role in ending this war. One involved a block on mobility 
The second was an intelligence gathering. Each of these blockhouses were linked with a telephone line, and in seconds news of a Boer commander flew across the countryside. Lord Kitchener began to turn these barbed wire fields outward. In other words, he began to use them as an offensive instead of a defensive structure. They changed from being cordons to keep Boers away to cages where he could trap them in a huge guerrilla net across the vastness of South Africa. General Christian de Wet said the policy of the blockhouses should be called the policy of the blockheads, but by the end of October, the blockhouse system had greatly improved the strategic map of the war. De Wet may have cocked a snook at Kitchener's master plan, but it was working. The facts are these. Since March, 2,000 Boers on average were being captured inside these barbed wire cages on the felt every month. Natal was clear of Boer guerrillas, while in the Cape, the few thousand commando members had been driven into the least important areas. Even the much-vaunted Jan Smuts had split his force and was now pushed into the wastelands of the extreme west and northwest. In the Transvaal and Orange River colony, guerrillas had fragmented and were now powerless to attack remote railway lines. While the British believed there were around 10,000 active Boers, there were actually 20,000. Still, these commando members were often inactive and operating in small groups. There were now three centres of resistance to the British. First, in the northeast corner of the Orange River colony, Steyn and Devet had gathered close to 2,500 men in the plains between Lindley, Bethlehem and Basutaland. The second main area was in the semi-desert areas of the western Transvaal, where General Kurs de la Rey had 2,200 men based just beyond the Machalisberg Mountains. The third region, the plains of the eastern Transvaal, where General Louis Boter was based. Kitchener was obsessing about these three centres of opposition. He was particularly interested in crushing President Steyn and Christian de Wet, who he believed, rightly, were the principal obstacles to negotiating peace. By the end of November, Kitchener had achieved impressive results with cleared areas more than double compared to the start of the month, and the Boers hunted down in greater numbers. The Boers had three choices. Try to break through the lines, reverse course and become more isolated, or give up. Every morning after his breakfast, Kitchener would receive the latest reports and move his little red flags around his wall maps. Frustration, however, was beginning to grow, as we've heard already. The brutalizing effect of this war was to lead to arbitrary executions. Frustration is the keynote of most wars. As anyone who has military experience and experience in a full-blown war will attest, most of the time you're merely killing time before the time for killing comes around. The troopers, the Tommy Atkins of the world, sat in these blockhouses or in camps along the railway line, waiting for something to happen. The regular soldiers had experienced military life in India, which meant they were used to long periods of high heat, no action, poor food, and nowhere to talk to loved ones. They made the best of the blockhouses, growing flowers in the bully beef tins, chalking up the usual facetious names like Kruger's Castle, Rundle's Starving Eighth, and Chamberlain's Innocent Victims. They wrote tens of thousands of letters home, mostly of the stiff upper lip variety, and adopted pets, including dogs and cats, goats, birds, monkeys, and even lizards. Every now and again, the felt would dish up a venomous African thunderstorm to spice up their lives, where the wind would wail like banshees across their barbed wires, and sometimes they would just fire a few shots into the darkness, just in case there were boers lurking. 
The English mounted columns were moving quicker across the felt, and they became isolated, and their actions became less regulated. The sense of bitterness against an enemy that would not fight properly increased, and that bitterness became a hatred when the rules of war were broken. As we've heard, the actions by the Bushfelt Carboneers, where Breaker Morant and his colleagues loosened their bonds of civilization by beginning to summarily execute Boers, was not unique. The Boers themselves had already begun a systematic execution of black and coloured soldiers fighting for the British and had let it be known formally that as far as they were concerned, it was a white man's war and any black man found fighting for England would be shot out of hand. So it was then that the sight of the bodies of British scouts, mainly black and coloured, but now and again white, scattered across the felt, enraged the common English soldier. Most were taken prisoner, then shot. They were not shot in engagements. This was a form of war crime. Charlie Ross, a Canadian second-in-command of a group of scouts raised by Major Gat Howard, had had enough. One day in the Transvaal, after viewing Boer victims, he shouted to his troops, Hold up your hands, men. I want you to take an oath with me not to take prisoners. Both sides were brutalized, not just by war, but the type of war. The guerrilla phase was now isolating Kitchener. He of the parade ground honor, the organized and serried ranks of soldiers facing each other on a field of battle, was now sitting in general headquarters in Pretoria, alienated and alone. He had around him what was called Kitchener's Band of Boys, but only Captain Frank Maxwell was permitted to get close to the officer commanding and rapidly developed the nom de plume, the Brat. The Brat was actually Frank Maxwell, who had earned a Victoria Cross as a lieutenant attached to Robert's light horse. On the 31st of March 1900, at Sunner's Post, Lieutenant Maxwell was one of three officers as having shown the greatest gallantry and disregard of danger in carrying out the self-imposed duty of saving the guns of that battery during the affair at Kornspreit. The note motivating for Maxwell's Victoria Cross continued, This officer went out on five different occasions and assisted to bring in two guns and three limbers, one of which he, Captain Humphreys, and some gunners dragging in by hand. He also went out with Captain Humphreys and Lieutenant Sterling, to try and get the last gun in and remain there till the attempt was abandoned. So you can see Captain Maxwell was actually a hero. His relationship with the British officer commanding His Majesty's forces in South Africa was curious to say the least. Lord Kitchener, you see, had a soft spot for Captain Maxwell, who was described as a fair-haired young aide-de-camp. The captain liked Kitchener. He is awfully shy, wrote Maxwell of Kitchener, his commanding officer. He really feels nice things, but to put tongue to them he would rather die. Lord Kitchener never wrote what he thought of Captain Maxwell outside of the formal military correspondence. However, we do know what the other officers thought of Maxwell, and his nickname was The Brat, which serves notice that the rest of the leadership were not enamoured by the apparent hero. But I need to mention a few incidents that are interesting. Such as the time that Lord Kitchener, who hated being photographed, allowed a camera into his office, but only if he and Captain Maxwell were in the shot, and then docile insisted they sit together. The brat recounted how Kitchener made a fuss about my vile appearance, and said, 
Good heavens, your hair is all over the place. The brat was the apple of Lord K's eye, but he was scoffed at by the other experienced military staff. Poor boy, wrote one. I fear his brain is not his strong point. The war in South Africa was taking its toll on Lord Kitchener, who developed a few distinctive habits that were decidedly odd. For example, he insisted on saving two baby starlings that had fallen down the chimney in his bedroom at General Headquarters. One died soon after, but the second appeared to lead a charmed life. Even the brat thought Lord Kitchener was losing his marbles, as the officer commanding fussed about finding worms all day for his baby starling, then would stand in front of its cage, whistling and chirping at the bemused bird, while his staff stared. He was described as rolling his porcelain blue eyes at the beggar leaving the war to look after itself. This may be a bit harsh, but you can very easily understand how these fighting men began to believe that their officer commanding had tipped beyond eccentric into cuckoo land. This was highlighted one afternoon when the starling escaped from his cage while Lord Kitchener was on a visit to Petersburg. The brat was told by other officers to draft a telegram preparing Lord K for the shock. CNC's hummingbird broke cover and took to the open diligence search instituted biped still at large, military secrecy, desolate, aide de camp and tears, army sympathizers. This, of course, was derided by the officers as they laughed while Maxwell pouted. When Lord Kitchener returned from his trip, he was stoic at least at first. After rushing through two days of correspondence, Kitchener organized a search party for his starling, the starling that officers called his hummingbird. The brat was irritated and grumbled how Kitchener's new drive did not involve his men in the felt searching for boers, but a small army of staff officers, menials and orderlies. Lord Kitchener then sallied forth with his little bird-hunting army. He somehow managed to fall prone into a wet flower bed, and the sea and sea was covered in mud by the time the bird was found hiding in a neighbor's chimney. I've never been so fond of that bird as since it's been loose, Lord Kitchener was heard to utter to the brat. While all of this was going on back in the Orange Free State, Boer General Christian de Vett was brooding over his plans. He'd ordered a gathering of Boer Free State leaders near Bethlehem, including General Michal Prinzler, Commandant Ulufir and Rotenbach of the Bethlehem Commander, along with Commandant David van Koller, who was in charge of the Heilbronn Commander, and Commandant Hermanus Boerter of Friede, Commandant Run of Ladybrand, and Commandant Jan Seliers of Kroenstadt. They pulled together a force of 700 men by the beginning of November 1901, who gathered at a place called Bladescup, or happiness. Although the spring was now far advanced, the felt was in a very backward condition, complained De Vett. I thereby ordered the various subdivisions of my commander to go and camp on the different farms in the neighborhood. He knew there was still not enough sustenance for his horses. This was very different to the conditions in the eastern Transvaal, a few hundred miles to the northeast. De Vett had been considering the effect of blockhouses as he waited for the rains to improve so that his large commander could reform and do some damage to the English. He had travelled to Harrysmith, where the burghers were under Commandant Jan Jakobs, but on return he caught sight of the new blockhouse development from Heilbronn through to Frankfurt in the Free State. De Vett was 
mocking of the whole idea. It has always seemed to me a most unaccountable circumstance that England, the all-powerful, could not catch the Boers without the aid of these blockhouses, he wrote after the war. There were so many other ways in which the thing might have been done and better done, he said. That may be true, but the reality was the blockhouses were working. They may have been a rather clumsy concept, yet the overall plan to squeeze the Boers into smaller spaces was proving successful. While the best fighters easily avoided the blockhouses, the British were burning farms and seizing hundreds and thousands of head of cattle, sheep and goats, and the Boers were finding their logistic system had by all intents and purposes broken down. The country was now pegged out like a giant gold rush. On the Natal frontier there was a line of blockhouses and barbed wire from Freire to Boerter's Pass, which then continued west, dotted with forts and blockhouses, to Harrysmith, then further west to Bethlehem. The line was continued southwards from there to the Basutoland border at Friesburg. Kroonstad was made the centre point. From there a series of blockhouses extended outwards, firstly northeastly to Freire, a second northwestly through Drikopi's diamond mine to Winkeldrift, then onwards to the Ronosterfeer, which had seen so much fighting over the past year. It ended at the Val River. A third line extended from Kronstadt southeastly to Lindley and a fourth southwestly along the railway line to the Cape Colony frontier. In the west, there was a line along the left bank of the River to the point where it joined the Vaal. Another started at the historic and strategic Sand River railway bridge through to Bosov and then onwards to the Cape Colony. Last but not least came the white elephant with which the reader is already acquainted scoffs the vet, the line from Bloemfontein to Ladybrand through Dabanchu. And this was just in the Free State. So many resources were poured into these blockhouses, so many troops were tied up protecting the barbed wire lines. I make no mention here of the thousands of miles of similar blockhouse lines which made a sort of spider's web of the South African Republic. By the end of the war, these blockhouses constructed of corrugated iron and the barbed wire, would be one of the defining sites for soldiers on both sides, and within a few years after the war, most would be gone. The corrugated iron was used by farmers and workers to build sheds and reservoirs and homes. The barbed wire was co-opted by livestock owners who would frame their land, from swords to plowshares, they say. Well, we need to halt at this point. It's time to dismount and light a fire for the night. Next week, We'll hear about Rawlinson's success in the Western Transvaal and De Vett's new commando and get an update from Jan Smuts in the Cape. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. And you can send me a direct message on Twitter at Des Latham or through my website, abwarpodcast.com. And thanks to those who've contacted me this week, John in particular, who keeps picking up editing errors. Thanks so much, John. I'm a one-man team here and having an army of listeners helping keep things clean and tidy helps a lot. Thank you so much. Please keep it up. So until next week, goodbye.